we will actually be speaking to two different audiences today because in addition to our NEC audience, we are going to be broadcasting this webinar on Manufacturing Talk Radio. I have the pleasure of being on the team at Manufacturing Talk Radio, and I am the host of the now two-year-old Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman. We will be broadcasting this NEC webinar, this historic NEC webinar, on Manufacturing Talk Radio because it's a subject that we all have a great deal of interest in. What's going to happen to the U.S. manufacturing sector that has already had so many challenges at a time of great stress, great duress? What's going to look like? What is it going to look like now? What, what is the path forward? That is what I'm going to explore with my two very distinguished panelists. Kristen Dizak is Vice President of Industry, Labor, and Economics at the Center for Automotive Research, CAR. She joined CAR in 2005 and has more than 25 years of experience as a researcher and policy analyst. She's globally recognized as an expert on automotive labor, employment, and talent issues, especially in the topic of labor union relations and contracts. Kristen? Welcome to our program today. We're delighted you could join us. Thank you for having me. Don Levins is no stranger to listeners of Manufacturing Matters on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Don was my guest on Manufacturers Manufacturing uh, Talk Radio last year. He is the distinguished vice president and chief economist of NEMA, the National Electrical Manufacturers Association. He holds a doctor in economics from George Mason University, also received a master's degree in economics from Virginia Tech and a bachelor's from the University of Virginia. At NEMA, he has an in-house consulting operation known as NEMA Business Information Services, which provides econometric modeling, macroeconomic forecasting, market research, economic analysis, and industry data collection services to a wide range of businesses, including many of the world's largest companies. Don, welcome to the NEC webinar, and welcome once again to Talk Radio. Okay, our format, folks, is really quite simple. Each, I'm going to start off. Each of us is going to speak for 10, 10 or 12 minutes. After that, we're going to have a little bit of banter among the panelists to keep things interesting, and then we are going to open it up to questions. For our NEC audience, you have a chat box that you can type in your questions to. We ask, just for the flow of the program, that you wait, uh, that we're going to answer questions after the presenters are done. For the talk radio audience, if you have questions, Please email them to me, jcweco at aol.com, and we'll make every um, effort to answer your questions. So we're going to go to the screen in front of you. That is the title slide of my short presentation. I can't think of a better title for it, U.S. Manufacturing Crisis and Beyond. If you – okay, why is this moving? 
All right, now we got it moving. I've had everything in the world happening to me on webinars, so, you know, no, nothing phases me. As you can see, this is annual manufacturing growth from 2000 to 2019. And thus far in the 21st century, it tells the story of a U.S. manufacturing sector that has met many challenges. The difficult employment situation post-2000, the bursting of the dot-com bubble, and the slow years of growth that centers around and after 9-11, the Great Recession, the trade war that we thought we were going to get out of. And in fact, remarkably, even though the Great Recession bottomed in June of 2009, the U.S. manufacturing sector, as you can see from these, uh, from these FRED data, the industrial production from manufacturing still has yet to fully recover, has not quite hit its December 2007 peak. Hopes for the tra a post-trade war recovery, which hit us in 2019, but not that badly, a minus 0.2% decline, They've been dashed by what now has turned into a globally devastating shock with a vicious virus that is, is rocking the world. Let's look at, normally I show these PMI data. They are very good. They show us that it looked like we were getting into a growth situation because at 50% and higher, that means that U.S. manufacturing is going to grow below 50% decline. We were sort of pulling out of the trade war, and then the virus pushed us back in. The Purchasing Managers Index survey has a lot of very valuable insights offer us at such a difficult time. Let's look at some respondent comments from the most recent survey, the March 2020 survey. COVID is impacting China's raw material supply chain, says somebody in the computer and electronic products sector. COVID has caused a 30% reduction in productivity in our factory. Somebody from the machinery sector, what have you seen that before? A 30% reduction. COVID's impact, impact is extended to Europe and North America. The virus escalation is affecting our purchasing and logistics operations. We have incurred air shipment and production interruptions due to shortages of raw materials and components. Interestingly though, and the reason that the manufacturing sector might be somewhat different than its impact in the whole economy is that there are some offsetting things in the good world. world. We are experiencing a record number of orders in the food and beverages uh, sector due to COVID-19. Let's look at what, in a numerical terms, what um, the virus has done to supply chains. This is the percent of respondents from the ISM survey in March, the most recent one, who reported lower supplier deliveries for U.S. manufacturing. In December, it was about 12%. March, in March, it was about 36%. You can see the impact of the virus basically overtaking manufacturing supply chains. What about jobs? Well, I went to the NFIB data, 
for the job story here. And the, the, the value of these re, this remarkable data set, which for quarterly, quarterly goes back to the early 1970s and monthly goes back to the mid-1980s, is that you can extract things by industry. This is the percent of small manufacturers who plan to increase employees over the next three months minus the percent who plan to decrease employees. It's a net increase. It's a net increase figure. And why small manufacturers? Well, in recent years, employment strength in the manufacturing sector has been pushed to the further reaches of the supply chain. There's more there's evidence that there's been more employment growth in second, third, and fourth tier suppliers than in the than in the original equipment manufacturer or in the big company. So therefore, a metric of what's going on with employment in the small manufacturers in the small manufacturers is very relevant to what's going on today. Now these are monthly data; they're very volatile, but you can see even before this crisis hit, even actually even before the trade war really ravaged us in 2019, we had a peak in employment for small manufacturing employment plans for small manufacturers in late 2018. So what's my forecast? Now, this was a, you have to understand this was as strange a forecasting exercise as I think I've ever done, and I'm sure a lot of um, economists feel that that is the case here. What is my forecast for uh, manufacturing growth, U.S. manufacturing growth this year? We've had two major crashes in the economy to look at. One was 2008-2009, and the other was the Great Depression. Peak to trough in 2008 and 2009, manufacturing lost about almost 21% of its output. It hasn't fully regained it yet. In the Great Depression of the 1930s, there was a... The best you can look at there is industrial production, which is manufacturing, mining, and utilities. And there, that index lost about 47% um, of the output there. So my best thinking is that it's not going to be as deep as the Great Depression for the simple reason that this may end up to be a quicker plunge and rise than anybody thought, but it's certainly going to be worse than the Great Recession because of the fact that we are simply closing things down. The auto industry has been shut down. I'm quite sure I'm going to have to revise these, but for right now, I'm thinking about a 22% decline in U.S. manufacturing output this year with about a 12% rebound next year, and then probably a continuation of a slow path going forward. Again, we are all forecasting in the dark, but I think there's some logic given the history of the manufacturing sector through deep declines, although this one is even unusual in that respect, to say that this is at least a starting point for a forecast. What are the recovery Issues. What are the issues in, uh, the, in the manufacturing sector's recovery from the pandemic 
decline? Well, first and foremost, the virus, the status of, of the outbreak. The question I have is here, we know that in other parts of the economy, bending the COVID curve gives us a stark choice. Either we do that or we put people back to work. Work in the restaurant industry is terribly stark. If we bend the COVID curve, restaurant worker, restaurant, particularly restaurant waiters, waitresses are going to lose their jobs. So it's a start, for the moment anyway, it's a stark choice. For manufacturing, I wonder if it's not just a little bit different. It is a different sector. It is a more capital-driven sector. There are certain parts of manufacturing that are critical now. Food, medical supplies, every, every day we hear about the challenges with medical supplies. So that horrible choice is certainly in the manufacturing sector, but maybe not to the extent as the, uh, the rest of the economy. Third, in terms of a recovery issue for U.S. manufacturing is how long this goes on. The, the longer this horrible state of affairs with a, a basic shutdown through so much of the economy goes on, the harder it will be for all of the economy to uh, recover. Then once we do recover, you have a, the usual set of things for ma that matter to manufacturing the state of the global recovery, and the IMF came out with a terribly stark forecast of about minus 4% in, in global growth, much worse than we had in the Great Recession. Oil prices have been a terrible price. We, need, we needed Russia and Saudi Arabia to really have a, an oil price fight, which made things all the, more, all the worse because, you know, a greater and greater percentage of domestic U.S. manufacturing output is in the energy sector. And of course, the dollar. The dollar has been high and difficult for so many manufacturers for years. So all these things matter for the short-term recovery of the U.S. manufacturing sector. Finally, looking forward, what are some of the long-term impacts of the pandemic? This too will be a work in progress. We'll be continue to look, look at them, but I'm gonna put forth four things. Supply chain, the starter office, remember, Manufacturing was the first sector in the U.S. economy to feel the impact of the virus. We were the first sector because while we were all watching, while most of the economy was kind of watching what was happening in China, manufacturing was feeling it through supply chain with China being such an important market for so many of our manufacturing industries. Automation. Are we going to accelerate it? Uh, it seems that a, a, a public and private um, acceleration of, of what's already been a fast and rapid investment in automation might come from this. Additive manufacturing. Added, 3D printing is no longer just prototyping. It's, it's gotten into production. And because it creates we, so much flexibility in the supply chain, are we going to have an accelerated um, investment, both public and private, in that? And finally, of course, biotech. The obvious biotech surge in, in that we're going to have deserves to be studied because it's going to have spillover impacts beyond those narrow industry sectors into other parts of manufacturing that are going to surprise people and that we ought to know about. That's my general comment. We are going to learn as we go along. I'm going to turn it over to Kristen now for her comments on autos. 
Thank you very much, Cliff. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, the auto industry, as you guys know, uh, extremely capital intensive, very global, um, and you know we're experiencing uh, simultaneous uh, supply and demand shocks at the same time. Uh, you know the supply chain disruptions began with us uh, as the virus took hold in Asia, and uh, you know I'm not convinced that the full brunt of the disruption in China and other Asian countries had reached our shores before the U.S. started to shut down. Um, we've seen demand crash, 40% uh, down in March, um, and likely much more in April as more of the country is shut down. And then, you know, that uh, also leads to a public health crisis or the, the crisis of how do we bring manufacturing back online how do we put um, auto workers in close proximity to each other to uh, make vehicles once uh, we have a return to some degree of normal? Um, there has to be social distancing in the plants. There has to be uh, wider spread testing and other uh, provisions for the restart. So those are the you know the three big buckets that we consider and, th and think about are the supply chain disruption, the demand side, and then the health issues that uh, we're facing in the plants. Um, the Interesting thing is that this uh, disease has had a serial uh, march across the globe, starting first in China, moving second to Europe, um, and now in North America. And with that, we can see some of the patterns of recovery um, in China. We're also seeing um, in Europe there's uh, beginnings to be some return to production, ironically, to support Chinese manufacturing. So there are differences in our three different uh regions of the world um, in terms of population density, government response, um, you know, even personal vehicle ownership uh, that may change the course of the recovery here um, versus what we're seeing in China. But it's hopeful to see China's come back online and to, um, to a large degree outside of Hubei and Wuhan, um, things are returning to some degree of normal. And of course, many of our companies operate in all three markets as well. So they've had that personal experience within their company about what it takes to um, synchronize and start up production again. Um, automotive, as you may know, is a, a very capital intensive um, and we're, you know, how long this lasts uh, will determine um, whether automakers and suppliers are going to make it through. Um, we, uh, we work on a negative working capital model. Uh, automakers are paid immediately after the vehicles are shipped from their plants, and the, they have typically you know, 30 to 60 days to pay for suppliers for their materials and, and parts uh, production. So generally, you know, through the course of a year, uh, the uh, automaker cash and production shipments uh, ramp up through time. Um, in this current environment, the negative working capital is unwinding very quickly as they're um, paying suppliers for the work done 30 to 60 days ago um, with no money coming in the front door. And there's a lot that's different about this from 2008 and 2009. Um, the industry is much healthier uh, with 10 years of very profitable operations um, and much healthier balance sheets as a result of the bankruptcies at General Motors and Chrysler. Um, so they're in a much better position. The capital uh, or the capacity utilization is also much uh, better. There's not a lot of underutilized capital in the in the system at the moment. So there's not that you know a wave of new plant closures or anything like that coming. Depending again on the course of the disease and how long we're shut down. Um, however, despite all of that and despite the access to functioning capital markets. Um, 
and the ability to tap those capital markets, uh, much of the industry has maybe two to three months of liquidity. Um, and that's absent any government assistance. And the government assistance, you know, we're really looking for how efficiently uh, they can get that money out, especially to the smaller suppliers. About 78% of the companies that are classified as automotive suppliers have firms of the size of less than 100 employees and about $4.5 million in receipts, in annual receipts. So these are companies that are trying to tap into the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, you know, there's some of that money is starting to trickle out um, at the moment, uh, but, you know, there are, that program is likely to be oversubscribed, and we're seeing uh, efforts in Washington to go back and, and put a little bit more um, money in the bucket. Uh, and, of course, this, the other big difference between 2008 and 2009 is everything is shut down. In 2008 and 2009, we saw mostly the domestic fires and domestic those tied to the domestic producers um, having a more difficult time than others. So if you were a diversified supplier, if you were supplying, say, uh, GM, Ford, and Honda, Honda was still continuing to produce through the, the, um, through the uh, downturn in 2008 and 2009. And, you know, you might be able to survive on that. If you were a diversified um, manufacturer that was doing some defense or some other industry like office furniture or aerospace, you might have a better um, – way to kind of wade through that downturn that we experienced. Right now, you know, no other sector is, is, is off-balancing what's happening in auto. So every supplier is down, and that's, um, that's another really, really big difference. Um, Pre-COVID-19, the auto sales forecast that um, my organization put out was for this year to be about 16.5 million SAR, or seasonally adjusted annual rate. Um, automotive sales last year was 17.2, so down just a little bit. Um, we've run a number of scenarios, and, you know, just like you, Cliff, it's very difficult to forecast into this, um, and I don't even want to put my numbers out there because they're just so so many factors. So, you know, absent government aid, we could be down very, very low, um, you know, around $10 million, which is where we got to in um, 2009. And then, you know, the automakers themselves have – uh, issued guidance that their break-even points are in the 10 to 12 million uh, SAR range. Now, those 10 to 12 million SAR range in includes the assumption of continued production. Without production, without money coming in the front door, the break-even is much lower, or sorry, is much higher than 10 to 12 million. Um, so, you know, we're very concerned about how long the shutdown lasts and how does how do we synchronize coming back online. And that's a, a big, big question. Um, early on, uh, we did a couple of estimates about what would happen with one week of lost production and sales in the auto industry, so no sales of new or used vehicles um, and no production. And we are essentially in the no production scenario right now. There are still some sales in regions of the country that are not under um, stay-at-home orders, and even in some places where there are stay-at-home orders, um, a small degree of sales continue. But one week of lost production and no sales uh, equates to a, a loss of 271,000 jobs across the economy for every week, uh, $20.5 billion in total personal income lost, and about $5.6 billion in lost government tax receipts. Um, you know, this, uh, this cash crunch is really uh, – I've edited a lot of documents written by my team at the Center for Automotive Research, and um, I have to keep pushing them to the thesaurus because the unprecedented word cannot be used five times in one paragraph. Um, but it really is a very unprecedented situation where you have simultaneous disruptions to demand and supply across the entire 
um, auto sector and not just certain companies. Um, so we're going to see uh, really um, impacted suppliers. Uh, their cash flow is going to start to uh, dry up around May or June. It's really much worse than they were um, when Treasury took action to ensure access to liquidity. The government um, uh, personal protection, or I'm sorry, Patriot Protection Program and the other um, offers of credit extension uh, will help here, but they have to be efficiently managed and get out there very quickly. Uh, and then once they do start to ramp up, there's uh, high working capital investment requirements for the supply chain to buy the materials and parts they need to restart production in advance of the automakers, and then they won't get paid for another 30 to 60 days. So. Um, that government assistance uh, is very, very important. Um, the cash crunch, we think, is you know, likely to reduce R&D uh, for entirely new, pro new products and some of the moonshot technologies that are out there. Um, and then the industry reports that we're, you know, people we're talking to say that near and me medium-term model launches may not be significantly impacted, but some of the further out ones will. And of course, this is a very um, globally integrated industry. Uh, and we're very dependent on parts imports from other regions of the world. Um, about 40% of our parts come from Mexico. Um, Mexico has been a very uh, different response to the COVID-19 outbreak, and there's differential uh, orders in place in different states in Mexico about what constitutes essential manufacturing. Um, this is really, really critical to starting up production in automotive. Um, you may require, recall just a year or so ago, there was a little fire at a supplier in Michigan that brought down the Ford F-Series pickup truck production. Um, F-Series pickup truck production is about one-tenth of every vehicle made in the United States. So one supplier, one fire, and about a tenth of production for um, output in the industry was taken down. And Ford worked very quickly to move those dies, ship them in the largest plane available, you know, and mitigate that, that risk. And I think there's a whole ton of risk mitigation that's going to come on. And then this really does um, run right up against uh, a lot of the trade actions that have been taking place. So, you know, whereas there may have been single suppliers or single suppliers in a couple of factories, we may look at um, automakers returning and suppliers looking at more eggs and more baskets around the world to mitigate some of these risks. Um, and I'll just bring up as a final point, you know, the administration is also moving very quickly uh, to implement the USMCA requirements. Um, the entry into force date is targeted at June 1st. This is going to be extremely challenging for the auto industry to meet these higher content requirements. Although they've known the broad contours of the deal, they don't know the uniform regulations and the exact details of how they're going to certify compliance with the new um, trade regime. So they're looking for some delay or relief from the entry force as they bring production back online. And then finally, um, you know, many of the automakers and suppliers have started sharing their restart playbooks. Uh, these are, you know, how much personal protective equipment they need to have, how they would sequence um, shifts, how they would redesign jobs, putting partitions in place. Um, and a various and sundry different considerations for what happens when someone gets sick and what kind of testing and you know monitoring of temperature of workers can be done in order to maintain uh, safe distance and safety and health in the plants once they restart production. So the restart playbook is starting to be shared, and um, I did put a few of them out on Twitter. On my Twitter handle is at kgcheck. Um, 
and if you do hashtag restart playbook, you should find those on Twitter. Uh, but that's starting to be promulgated throughout the industry about how we're going to sequence and make sure the you know the parts suppliers come up safely and then automakers come up safely because starting up and shutting down and starting up and shutting down is going to be disastrous for our industry. So with that, I'll turn it back to you. Kristen, thank you so much. Uh, we'll hear from, from Dr. Levins now. Hi, Kristen and Cliff. Um, that's a good overview and good segue into our segment, the electrical equipment segment. Uh, we are um, more diverse, I think, than the automotive in terms of we have large equipment manufacturers all the way down to very small um, electronic electrical um, components. Um, and we like we have um, our key customers include utility and the energy sector, um, as well as electrical construction and the industrial sector. Um, we also do represent the medical imaging uh, folks who have had uh, really no uh, major impact in terms of their production capability. And looking at the utility side, uh, on the energy side, um, our members are also, um, so far, not seeing much of a decline. Uh, um, they're concerned about the demand uh, for electrical, but these tend to be longer-term projects, um, and so there's a, a little less um, concern that we're hearing. Um, but when you go to electrical construction, um, also um, we're hearing that it's holding up fairly well currently, um, but again, these are based on uh, construction projects, and as we saw in 2008 in the electrical industry, uh, we went in with, with um, order books that were way in excess of capacity, and, and people were working full-time, and their greatest fear was how are we going to meet demand, and by, um, you know, midway through 2008, most of those orders got canceled, so we're early on into this, and um, we're concerned another situation on the on construction side that people could pull back. And on the industrial side, um, it's been very hard hit. It was hard hit, as you mentioned, Cliff, um, before we even got into this. It's been struggling. And, and now it's, um, you know, with the trade sector and the prospect of, of trade um, cratering uh, over the next um, six to 18 months, um, that does not bode well for the overall industrial sector. But one of the things we found that is most difficult for our um, member companies is getting current information. Um, most of the information we get from the government is backward looking, um, and that was all rosy. We don't have a lot of current other than the ISM, and even that tended to be backward. So we've been doing a series of surveys out to members to find out to post them uh, almost on a weekly basis to find out what they're running up against. And um, according to the respondents that we've heard from, about two-thirds of them have not had to do any uh, curtailment of production. They're still uh, keeping production strong. A third of them have seen um, some production reduction. Uh, the most of them have cut production by about, of those who did, between 1% and 25%. Um, so we're still not heavily um, hit. The, the top challenges our companies are finding is the um, they're, they're concerned about the potential for declining demand. They're seeing some of it, and there's an inability for them to plan ahead, um, given the uncertainty inherent in the pandemic and the response to it. Employee availability is also cited as something that's concerning um, and to many of our member companies. Um, many uh, 
uh, employees have had to take leave either because they were sick or somebody else in their work in their um, household was sick, um, and so they have not uh, been able to come to work. Also, um, the generous unemployment insurance um, uh, that has been beefed up has made it um, so that many companies now are having to offer bonuses to get people to get off of unemployment insurance and come work for them. Um, so finding the workforce in, in our area, some of our areas are running full out and, and can't, uh, they're at max capacity and they, they, they need more workers and are unable to, to find uh, workers in their specific areas. Um, so it's a mixed um, bag here. Um, some of them are looking at to what the government could do to help uh, in, in this. And uh, the most uh, frequent response, one of the most frequent responses we get is that the, the government needs to suspend tariffs and other trade barriers, um, that that's exacerbating the supply chain effects um, that we're seeing that are also disrupting uh, the economy. And um, so, I mean, that, I think that gives you a snapshot of, of where we are from, from the economic standpoint. And um, I must say that one of the things we're focusing on is, is what is what is it going to be like going forward? Not so much we all understand what's happening in this second quarter, but what you know it's going to be devastating. But what is difficult is to paint the picture in the third and the fourth quarter and on into next year. And do we have a very quick recovery, the V-shaped recovery we're hearing about? Um, maybe if we start in June uh, to, to relax, if we wait until August to do that, does it turn into a U-shape? And does it become a much more um, deeper, longer-lasting uh, recession? Or could we push this too early and wind up with a W? And it's very hard to do those types of scenario analysis with the data changing at all at all points. And, and I know that, that the people we deal with at IHS uh, Global has um, been working night and day to get their models in shape to try to do this scenario forecasting. And many of us are left in the dark as to how to, to look forward. Um, to it, but but one thing that, that I've noticed is that there's a number of people making forecasts as to what this new normal is going to look like. That um, you know you could expect um, uh, such and such to happen in transportation. Electric vehicles are going to be hit hard. Um, we're going to see all kinds of changes out there. And I would just caution that you got to go back to 2000, um, 9/11, 2001, and people were. We're making all kinds of forecasts that no one would ever travel again. We would never have conventions. We wouldn't have meetings. We wouldn't do all kinds of things as a result of 9-11, and that turned out to be wrong. And there's a lot of mis misguided um, uh, forecasts out there. So I think we have to be careful about extrapolating the current into the future um, because many things will be changing. And as dire as it is, uh, the government's also injecting trillions of dollars of stimulus money into the economy. And that uh, much of it uh, could be wasted, could be leaked, but um, that will count in terms of um, keeping the economy uh, going uh, and, and holding um, some people in place um, uh, so that when we have these relaxation, relaxed um, uh, social distancing requirements, the economy will be ready to, to come back uh, to steam. Um, so um, that, that's my summary remarks. Um, Cliff, if you want to move on to, to your um, questions. Don, first of all, thank you very much. Thank you both, uh, Don and Kristen. Um, we certainly want to get to, uh, to participant questions. I'm just going to throw out one question for both Don and Kristen, uh, just to get your, your feel for this. And it's a difficult, it's a difficult question. 
But you have to imagine going forward that there's at least a possibility that this event is going to change and, and in some fundamental way change our economic relationship with China. And I, I mean that on a price, not so much on a government geopolitical level, but on a private sector level. Obviously, it's an enormous market, a middle class market that is getting wealthier by the year. Um, but at the same time, the cost and the perceived cost are, are, are of doing business, of having a China-centric supply chain, of having a, an economic uh, business relationship with China, at least are growing. I, I'm going to ask both of you. I'll, I'll ask Kristen to respond first, Don, second. Do you think that in your industry sector or sectors that there's going to be over the next five or ten years coming out of this, that there's going to be a notable difference in your pri- in the private sector relationship that your companies have with China? Well, I think in the auto sector, you know, China is the largest market for vehicles in the world, and automakers right. ignore China at their peril, and they have. Um, and we've seen evidence of that. So staying in the China market for China, for Chinese sales, is key to any automaker's success. Um, and, you know, while it was a big risk earlier on this year to have exposure to the Chinese market and, China, you know, Chinese revenue drops, um, now it may turn out to be a, a boon to those companies as China recovers. They also have very low um, personal vehicle ownership, and we've seen in previous uh pandemics and epidemics, uh, that there's a very strong spring back to personal vehicle ownership as people who have traveled in shared spaces of public transit want to be in their you know cocoon of their own vehicle, and they're not trading off as we would in a large city in the United States for like a three-hour commute um, when they go to personal vehicle ownership. Um, so there's, there's some upside uh, to coming back in China. And I think, you know, there were some trends in place before uh, COVID-19 impacted uh, the Chinese supply chains, and those were, you know, wages in China were rising. We've seen, um, you know, the, the impact of the trade war back and forth, which, you know, if I can venture into, I don't do political stuff, but I do um, evaluate what the trade picture looks like. I don't see a huge change in the in the engagement with China and, and between Anybody who could be occupying the White House next year, China is still going to be a number one issue. The approach may be different. A uh, Democrat may take a more multilateral approach to China trade issues, um, whereas the U.S. has been engaging very bilaterally. But I think that trade um, engagement is going to continue, and what that the outcome of that has been is more diversification. And like I said in my introductory remarks, more eggs and more baskets. Um, we saw, you know, when the tariffs went on, say, tooling for automotive, um, many of the companies pulled tooling out, um, even tooling that was not completed, and moved to other markets in Taiwan, um, South Korea, Eastern Europe, and other places. So I think we're going to see an explosion of, uh, you know, many eggs, many baskets of forward supply chain. It's just going to become much more complex to, mo- to manage, um, but it will be much, you know, less risk um, involved if you have it all over the place and not just all in 
one place. Now, I want to point out that China um, is our third largest importer of vehicle parts to the United States, but about 75% uh, of those are going to aftermarket applications. So Mexico is really much larger. Mexico is about 40% of vehicle imports, uh, of vehicle parts imports. Uh, Canada is about 11. China is about 10%. Um, so, and a large portion of that goes to your local, um, you know, auto parts supply store where you might buy a replacement headlight or uh, air filters, oil filters, spark plugs, and that sort of thing. Um, that kind of thing may still continue to be from China, but for OEs, they're going to be moving that stuff um, all over the place and sort of atomizing the supply chain. Don? One of the questions that we asked in that survey last week was, would you consider reshoring to North America? And about 40% of our respondents said they would consider it. Um, but I would add that in my conversations with many of our largest members, um, most of them said that there's, there's no way that they're going to leave China. It's too large a market for them to leave and that cost is the, the number one thing that they're concerned about in terms of reshoring and bringing back operations to the United States, both regulatory costs um, and, and just the labor costs and the overall um, cost of doing business in the United States for many um, uh, products does not make sense. The Mexico agreement helps in terms of uh, bringing back um, some, some more um, uh, manufacturing there. I would agree with Kristen that the diversification is one thing, uh, diversification of supply line is something to which um, companies are aspiring. But I have to point out, again, the aspirations are one thing, but if you go back to the earthquake, the devastating earthquake in Japan, um, and everybody was in a, you know, a terror because there were not enough electronics parts, automobiles were, were all uh, changed, the availability of, of shipping was, was, was horrible, and everybody talked about diversifying supply chain and, and the like. And in the reality is they didn't do it, um, or not nearly to the extent that they had said that they were going to do it, because uh, short-term costs were what were driving business investment decisions. And so it would be amazing to see, you know, especially now that companies are cash-strapped, that they're also going to be able to invest in multiple supply chains at a time when they don't have the capital to do that. Um, I think warehousing is something – um, that many companies are going to – you said that in the beginning, uh, Cliff, that, that, that many people are going to be um, relying more on, on warehousing and, and better um, uh, stocking and strategic planning of where to put things. But in terms of where they're going to do their business, um, I think we'll see some change at the, at the margin, but not wholesale. Well, and we will see some changes with the implementation of USMCA, too, that um, whole – Auto chapter does increase the need for greater uh, North American sourcing, um, so that was going to be in the works anyway. And you know, as the auto industry has fully embraced the lean manufacturing techn technologies, uh, you know, first deployed by Toyota in the Toyota production system, there is buffers and uh, you know uh, stores in there that maybe need to be a little fatter um, in order for us to be as both efficient and resilient um, using uh, lean manufacturing. Thank you both very much. All right, at this point, we're, we want to take your questions. To help with that, um, I am joined on the webinar today by my colleague, Robin Motre. For those of you who don't know Robin, she is NEC's uh, business manager, and she has done quite a lot of work in researching and transitioning us to this, this new platform. So we're, we're grateful for that. So Robin 
if you can read the question, which I hope I hope there are questions in the chat box there. Um, I'll repeat the question and then we'll decide who answers it. Okay, good. Yeah, we've gotten a few questions. Um, and I actually was thinking, since this is our first webinar, we weren't sure how to really do this. But um, if those of you who have already asked questions, if you want, I can call on you to ask those questions or I can just read them. Um, but since the first person is um, Michael Chow, one of our uh, board members, I figure, uh, Michael, if you would like to ask your question, I'll give you a few seconds. Otherwise, I'm happy to read your question. Why don't you read Michael's question? Okay, yeah, because um, everyone might already be in the mute mode and webinar mode. Um, he asked, what practical measures have U.S. manufacturers made or will they make to change their production processes to allow for social distancing guidelines to be respected on factory floors? And have such measures been accounted for in your near-term forecast for the sectors? If so, could you please share how you accounted for these production adjustments? And I know we talked a little bit about that, um, but maybe you can expand on it. Kristen, well, let me let me let me turn that one first over to you. That that again, that that would be more for our um, industry analysts than it would be for me. What have you? What are you hearing or seeing about that in auto? So we have already seen some of this. You know, there was a negotiation going on as the auto industry started to shut down. Um, between the uh, Detroit three automakers that are represented by the UAW and the UAW about conditions where they would continue to produce until the decision to shut down was made. So we saw a little peek into what was being uh, considered. Um, you know, I think when we come back, we come back one shift. Uh, we may come back, uh, you know, at slower line speeds. We know that some of the jobs are being redesigned so that, you know, where they may be, you know, often doing simultaneous, you know, the right and the left of something at the same time, um, especially things that are inside the vehicle. Um, they may be sequencing those out. So somebody's inside the vehicle and somebody's working outside the vehicle when, you know, say seatbelt anchors are being installed. So they're not right next to each other. They're going to, you know, they're making personal protective equipment for the healthcare sector now, um, as well as, you know, ventilators and uh, all sorts of other things. But they're going to need some of that personal protective equipment um, in the plants as well. Uh, what we've seen in the continuing produce production, so the parts distribution arms are working, as well as this um, arsenal of health, uh, the people who are working in the healthcare manufacturing in the auto plants, you know, they're doing temperature checks at the door. Uh, they've got a plan in place if somebody falls ill, you know, where is the sick bay um, and how are they going to manage that? They've had increased uh, sanitation of the workplace, um, so there has to be greater breaks uh, for those cleaning processes to happen, taking out half the chairs in the cafeteria and sequencing lunches. Um, people come into shift um, from, through one door and leave the shift through another door so there's no crossing um, when people come in. And even, you know, at the time clock, um, having just somebody who's interacting at the time clock so the time clock is not a source of contagion as well. So there's a whole bunch of things. And I would recommend, again, um, you know, looking at, you know, Lears is out there and it's pretty complete. It's a 51-page document and it talks about um, you need to have this, you know, 30 days supply of personal protective equipment, a hand sanitizer, um, just all the practical considerations that manufacturers are going to have to take into account when they start to um, bring people back into the manufacturing environment. Uh, there's 
partitions that they may be putting up in some places too where they cannot get the six foot uh, distance between people. They may put partitions to try to interrupt the, the disease contagion or the, the airflow between people. Um, but there's there's a whole lot of redesigning how we manufacture cars going on right now um, so that when we do restart, uh, there, that distance is possible. Now in China um, and some other Asian countries, they're utilizing some more um, electronic surveillance um, so they can test, you know, people's temperatures uh, um, by detecting through thermal imaging. Um, they can also, you know, track people's phones and know how close people are getting to each other. I don't know that this uh, this country or this uh, region of the world is going to be that accepting of those sorts of personal tracking. Um, and even, you know, taking temperatures at the door may violate HIPAA, um, the healthcare protect, you know, personal protection that we have through HIPAA. But um, I think, you know, what people want to know is that they're, they're not in an environment where somebody is actively sick um, and that the most protections can be done. Now, there hasn't been widespread testing. I saw that one of the questions was about what percentage of the workforce has been tested. The tests are very scarce. Um, and here in Michigan, where we're you know, in one of the hot spots, there's just not been enough testing done at all, and certainly not any that has been um, uh, concentrated or focused on a particular industry. There are some engagements and discussions about um, what kind of testing we might do. Um, but you know the, the the what we have right now, there's no serum testing that's widely available. That's going to be the easiest thing that says whether somebody has the antibodies or not. We don't know yet if the antibodies are going to be protective. There's some uh, you know discussions in the epidemiology and, and infectious disease community about um, people having the infection and having it uh, be able to come back. So maybe that's not enough to be protective. Uh, but there's a there's a whole lot that's going into that restart playbook in addition to the practical matter of sequencing production and bringing up, you know, you got to bring up the steel producers first, the parts suppliers next, and then, you know, how we how we just uh, tumble back into um, to being able to build vehicles again. Don, what are you hearing about social distancing from your members? A lot, I would echo a lot of what uh, Kristen said with regard to our large global um, companies that they're doing much of what she said and also bringing back a lot of the practices that they put in play in China during the crisis that, that, that they found successful, they're employing here. Our smaller member um, companies are uh, reporting difficulty getting some of the uh, protective uh, equipment um, that they need for their workforce, getting even cleaning supplies and the like, and, and are looking to source those. Uh, they don't have the, the same leverage that the larger companies do. And I, I must note that one of the, the hardest things right now for companies is the rules are changing daily, um, state by state, with regard to what they can do, who is essential, who's not essential, who can come to work, and, how, and under what conditions. So they're having to work very carefully to be sure they're in perfect um, legal. Um, they're buying all, the, buying all the new laws and regulations as they're occurring, and I think that's a that's a difficult thing um, for most of them uh, currently. But I would certainly. I agree with Kristen that, that um, all of the, the Lear report and others are, are guiding our members in terms of um, how they can bring uh, workers, uh, changing their shifts, um, allowing um, the same groups of people to be, uh, same shift 
not switching up the people who are working shift from shift um, so that you have the same group each time uh, and, and also reducing the shift load. So that reduces the, their capacity because they're, they're uh, reducing the number of workers um, in order to meet the social distancing. Um, so that, and the testing is a big problem as well. It's very difficult um, in, in an environment where you can't test, but this should improve as, as uh, tests become more available. And less invasive. I, I think that's the other thing right now. We've got the, the widespread testing is nasal swabs, and I don't know how you do that for 1,500 people that come in to shift at the same time, um, and then having enough testing personnel to deployed to do that. Um, it's just going to be very, very difficult to do widespread testing. Robin wants to know the question. Um, we have uh, two more questions. Um, one is, uh, how important is the value of the dollar to any potential reshoring of American supply chain? Um, and I'll go ahead and read the second question so you can determine how to um, do the timing. Uh, the second question is, if a vaccine is available in a year or so, combined with the federal stimulus programs, is there a possibility of a fairly quick bounce back? Let me, let me take the one on the dollar. This, this becomes, every time the dollar makes a big move, particularly upwards, there's always a question if, if it's going to have a, um, a, a physical um, rejiggering re, re, uh, of supply chains. I, 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 you know, the issue with the dollar is, is, is how remarkably volatile it, it can be. And I do not think, and, and I, this, this is something I've changed my mind on from, let's say, five years ago. I do not think that the dollar is going to have that much of an impact on, on supply chain uh, decision-making. Um, you know, if, any, if, if Chris and Don, if you disagree with that in your specific areas, but I, I just, you know, never, again, the dollar has, uh, you know, took a big leap upwards, and, and the, you know, the broad frame by the dollar took a big leap upwards in 2014. It, it's a very difficult um, burden for a lot of manufacturers, but uh, I, I just, there's never any evidence that there's, there's you know, uh, any fundamental supply chain thinking that changes with, um, you know, with even with a difficult um, and arguably overvalued dollar. But Kristen and Don, you can disagree with me. I don't disagree with you. No, no I would agree. It's not the driving force. Uh, Robin, what was the second question? I'm sorry. Um, just a moment. I'll read that second question. And uh, Kristen's not going to be able to stay with us much for much longer because we're approaching 4 okay. o'clock. Uh, right. The question is, if a vaccine is available in a year or so, combined with the federal stimulus programs, is there a possibility of a fairly quick bounce back? I, I'm going to take that and then we'll push it. A vaccine and the federal stim, the federal stimulus. I'll, I'll give you my view on the federal stimulus program. It's really not, at, the, at least at the moment, it's really not a stimulus program. I would call it a federal stability program. It's not going to, it's not going to stimulate anything. It's making sure that we get from one end of this nightmare to the other with with the, the you know the foundations of economic activity in place that we minimize bankruptcies, that we minimize systemic risk, you know, the mortgages, uh, um, you know, the debt markets, the corporate debt, that kind of thing. So I, I, I you know, I think the, um, 
the vaccines and the federal stability uh, legislation and what the Federal Reserve has done are necessary, but not really sufficient conditions for manufacturing to recover. Really, as I pointed out in, in my slides, what has to happen on top of all of that is that, the, you know, we're the most globalized sector, so the global economy has to recover. And I, I you know, I think that's going to be a, a real haul. I think, I think the U.S. will probably recover before the globe does, but manufacturing is going to be weighed down by a very uncertain world, I'm afraid, for years to come. I think we'll have some bounce back as my forecast. A partial bounce back is my forecast indicated in 2021, and then slowness, you know, kind of sluggishness thereafter. I hope not, but that, that's what I'm looking at. Listen, folks, we are – I don't want to keep anybody beyond our time. It is 4 o'clock right now. I want to first thank our two very distinguished guests, and Kristen and Don. We could not have had more insightful analysts join us today. For, to the NEC audience, this is the first webinar we're having, and we, we are going to plan many others as we want to keep our high-quality program going at this very difficult and very critical time. We want to be an asset, a partner with you in trying to understand what's going on in all segments of the economy. To the talk radio audience, the same thing. I will make sure that my program keeps on top of this. We want to be an asset to talk radio listeners as we go through this very dark, very difficult um, period. Until then, I'm looking forward to speaking to everybody, to working with everybody, and we'll get, we'll get through this. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.